Welcome to episode 57 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Why, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 57 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. And I'm not just here with Jen Stevens. We have a super duper special guest that we are just so excited about today. We have Dr. Walter Longo on the podcast today. How are you, Dr. Longo? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, So listeners, since you're familiar with intermittent fasting, you are probably familiar with Dr. Longo, but I will tell you a little bit about him just to give you a brief overview. So Dr. Longo, he's an internationally recognized leader in the field of aging studies and related diseases. Some of his discoveries include some of the major genetic pathways that regulate aging and life-threatening diseases, as well as the identification of a genetic mutation that actually protects men from several common diseases. And he is the professor of gerontology and biological science and director of the Longevity Institute at the, wait for it, School of Gerontology at USC. I went to USC, Dr. Longo, <laughs> so fight on. Um, he, I know, I agree, <laughs> likewise with you. Uh, he's also the director of the Oncology Laboratory and Longevity at the Institute of Molecular Oncology, IFOM in Milan. He's also the founder of createcures.org, and that is a foundation which promotes scientific and medical projects aimed at the rapid identification of low-cost integrative therapies for the prevention and treatment of major diseases. He's received multiple prestigious awards on aging, and Time Magazine even called him the Guru of Longevity, which is a pretty nifty title, if you ask me. Um, He also developed, and this is something that listeners might really be familiar with, it's the fasting mimicking diet, which basically, um, well, we're going to talk about it a lot in the podcast, but you get the benefit of fasting without actually, quote, fasting per se. So we're going to talk all about that. And he's also talked about, um, people. he released a book in January, uh, this past January, called The Longevity Diet, Discover the new science behind stem cell activation and regeneration to slow aging, fight disease, and optimize weight. And so that includes the fasting mimicking diet as well as his more general longevity diet. So, whew, a lot of stuff, lots to tackle, and we're excited to just jump in. So tell us a little bit about your history. How did you come to create this diet for longevity, and how did you get into the whole longevity fasting, that whole world? So um, I've been working on uh, longevity for as long as I can remember. I was uh, actually a sophomore in college at, uh, in Texas, and um, I was a music student, and I uh, sort of switched from music to uh, longevity, essentially. And uh, that's all I ever wanted to do, and eventually I joined the lab of Roy Walford, uh, he was one of the pioneers of, of, of color restriction and also one of the leading figures in the world um, at UCLA uh, for, for aging and longevity. And so um, I, uh, I spent a few years with them and then uh, uh, moved back to the biochemistry department at UCLA where I started working on starvation. I mean, Walford was famous for calorie restriction, which is essentially the uh, reduction of calorie intake by about 30% below normal. And, um, but then in the biochemistry department, I started working with simple organism, 
I mean, Wolfer was working mostly with humans and mice. And I went back to uh, the simple organisms like yeast and bacteria to understand the fundamentals uh, and, and identify the genes that control aging to then move back um, to, uh, to mice and humans. So how did the fasting mimicking diet and longevity diet come out of that? And actually, can you tell listeners a little bit about what both of those are? The longevity diet and the fasting mimicking diet? Yes. Yeah, so the longevity diet is really uh, everything, meaning that includes the fasting mimicking diet. Um, so the longevity diet is, is the title of the book, and, uh, and it's really about uh, what do you eat every day, um, uh, that is ideal uh, to get you to live long and healthy, uh, and, but also uh, how do you, um, what do you can do in addition to the everyday diet to, uh, to make you live long and healthy. Uh, and it's a fasting-making diet, which is a low protein, low sugar, uh, high fat, uh, high good fats, a plant-based uh, five-day diet uh, that should be done between once a month to a couple of times a year. And so this is the, the intermittent fasting podcast. So how, how does, I guess, particularly the, um, the fasting-mimicking diet, how does that compare to intermittent fasting as far as the health benefits or the effects on the body, um, how do those two compare? Yeah, so, uh, well, first of all, intermittent fasting in the sense that uh, you should eat for about 12 hours a day and, and fast for about 12 hours a day is something that I talk about in my book and I'm very much uh, in support of. Um, and uh, then, of course, intermittent fasting gets to lots of different areas. Uh, uh, so it's hard to uh, to uh, know which one we're talking about, right? So it could be two hours, it could be uh, twenty hours, it could be you know two days. Uh, the um, the fasting making diet uh, is different from inter intermittent, and that's why we call it periodic fasting. Uh, a because it doesn't need to be done at, at any particular intervals, right? So it's not something that you need to do every other week, every month, you know. You can do it if you need to do it, but that's really the important part about the FMD, the fasting making diet, is it should be done when you need to do it. Um, and, and now we're involving lots of doctors and registered dietitian to, to make that decision. Do you need to do it? Does somebody need to do it? And, and uh, um, when and for how long? And uh, why is it different? Well, it's different from most intermittent fasting because it's much longer. Uh, and so, for example, if you do, let's say, uh, the 5-2 diet, right? So that's uh, intermittent fasting, and you have maybe 500 calories uh, every third day. Um, now your fasting period is going to be maybe about uh, 16 hours or something like that. Um, and um, now the 16 hours it probably gets you uh, to move uh, a little bit towards the uh, ketogenic mode, but very, very little. Uh, because it takes about two days to be in a full ketogenic mode, right? So where the body is starting to break down fat, and mostly the fat from the visceral area, from the belly, to fuel the system, right? So, um, so the fasting-making diet, because it's five days long, it, it takes advantage of that switch, and it then keeps you about three days in that full ketogenic mode where your in the virtual entire metabolism depends on the, uh, on the breakdown of visceral fat. How would that differ, I'm just personally curious, from like a ketogenic diet that a lot of people follow where they're not even fasting per se, but they are in ketosis? Yeah, so it's very different from a ketogenic diet because a ketogenic diet sends a signal to the system that you have all the nourishment that you need, right? The uh, fasting mimicking diet sends the opposite signal. It, say, it basically tells the system, I'm in a starvation mode. It's an emergency mode. Start breaking down components both inside of a cell and at the organ level, right? So, for example, autophagy doesn't, can happen but doesn't necessarily have to happen on a ketogenic diet. Lots of the cells are going to be fully functional. Uh, in, uh, so this is the cellular breakdown. And also... Uh, during the fasting and fasting mimicking diet, uh, the white blood cells start breaking down. The, the muscle, the, 
the liver, almost everything. And it sounds like a bad thing, but it's not, right? So I always use the analogy of a, of a wood-burning train and, and say, imagine that this wood-burning train is 100 miles from its destination and is running out of fuel, uh, out of wood to burn. And so the engineer in the train goes around the train and picks pieces of, of chairs and walls that are damaged and burns those, right? So now you're taking apart the train, but you're really taking the bad parts and you're burning them. Now, when you get to the next station, uh, the train is lighter, you made it there and you can rebuild, right? So now you take new wood and all the chairs that you've used for fuel, you can replace with the newly, uh, the, the new wood. So now you have a partly regenerated, rejuvenated train. I think that's a great analogy. Um, I think that's one that, that people will really understand. I wanted to ask you to clarify something, Dr. Longo. You said um, you you recommend the fasting mimicking diet. You called it periodic fasting. And then you said when you need to do it, like you recommend it on an as-needed basis. Can you elaborate on some of the times that you feel that, that it would be appropriate for people to, to use the fasting mimicking diet or when they would need to use it? Yeah, and I think this is a warning against all kinds of, you know, of course, I'm, uh, I'm uh, very biased with, the, with all kinds of fasting. I mean, we, we work very hard at getting people to do it, but I also work very hard at making sure that people don't jump ahead of the, 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 uh, the knowledge that we have, right? So, so you know, it, it is possible that after somebody does this for 10 years, the fasting making diet, that we start seeing some side effects. We don't see it now right now. We have over 50,000 people that have done it. So the point is, although it looks great, I mean, it's safer than anything we've seen uh, before, uh, but you always have to keep in mind that it's possible that people will start developing some side effects. And so we're saying, if you're obese, have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high triglyceride, uh, you probably need to do it once a month. Why? Well, because you're already at such a high risk of developing diseases uh, because of what you have that any minor risk that might come from doing this once a month is, is, worth, is worth it, right? Uh, now, if you're a very healthy person, you're a 32-year-old athlete, uh, and you have a perfect everyday diet, um, now that, uh, that person um, may not want to risk uh, and, um, and, and maybe um, you know, doing it once or twice a year, it's uh, uh, very safe, meaning that the fasting-making diet has got between 800 and 1,100 calories per day. Uh, there is really no, no reason to believe that doing it once or twice a year is going to hurt anybody. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's very important to not just say, I see an effect of whatever diet, you know, whether it's a, a fasting-making diet or, or is every other day fasting or it's the 5-2 or it's 16 hours. I mean, all of these are really new. And uh, I mean, people have been doing it for a long time, but it doesn't mean anything it, it, because we were not really meant to live to 100 years of age, right? So back in the days, if we made it to 55, that was already a great achievement. So now uh, we need to go much longer, right? So then the, there could have been things that we did in the past that, that you know are not necessarily such a good idea in modern times, right? So uh, yeah, so that's, 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 a, that's a caution to... Uh, for any type of fasting, great. It can help you tremendously if you use it well, uh, but it may also hurt you if you misuse it. And so what are the health benefits somebody might see from implementing the fasting mimicking diet? Yeah, so uh, if we start with the mice and then move to humans, so in mice we started uh, uh, in middle age. We took mice that are middle age, and then we started doing this uh, twice a month uh, until death. And basically show that they live longer. They have about uh, or close to a 50% reduction in, in tumors and maybe even larger reduction in cancers. Uh, improvement in cognitive uh, function. So they, they, they remember better. Uh, they were quicker at learning. Um, major reduction in inflammation. Uh, and the mice, you know, eventually live longer. And um, in people, we've done this uh, um, with um, 100 uh, subjects. Uh, we did three cycles, uh, lasting five days, uh, three months in a row. And uh, at the end of the three cycles, uh, we looked at many, many different things. And so they had uh, the people at risk had uh, lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, lower triglycerides or fasting glucose, 
uh, lower C-reactive protein, which is a marker for uh, systemic inflammation, um, and also lower IGF-1, which is a potential risk factor for, uh, for cancer. Okay, so to um, re- reiterate what you just said to listeners, the fasting mimicking diet isn't something that you should just casually do <laughs> or think that you can, you know, um, just, yeah, just casually do. It's something that needs to be taken very seriously, taken with the help of a practitioner, a doctor. Um, that said, I so I do know that you outline in your book the specific macronutrients and the calories that are required for that. And then there's also, you have your, your prolon. What is it exactly? Would you like to talk about prolon? Yes. Yeah. So prolon is the fasting making diet that was tested clinically and is, uh, and is made available by Alnutra. Um, I should mention that I don't have any, um, I'm financial interest in the sense that I don't take consulting from the company and all my shares will be, uh, donated to the foundation that I started. So, um, so it all goes back to, to charity essentially. And so that is a, um, that's through a doctor. Yeah, Prolon is a, is a fasting making diet. The, the, the fasting making diet that was tested in the clinical trial that I just mentioned is also the fasting making diet that over 50,000 people have done. Uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily followed by a doctor. We usually, I mean, now we, because I, I, I don't have anything to do with the sale, but certainly the company uh, recommends that a doctor follows anybody that has a disease, uh, but if somebody is healthy and uh, then a registered dietitian can just give them some uh, instructions on how to do it and they can do it at home. And, uh, and so far it's been uh, extremely safe. Yeah. Okay, great. So for listeners, if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 57, we'll put links to all of this information that we're talking about so you can look more into that if that's something that's of interest to you. So Dr. Longo, so how do you feel? And (laughs) this is actually, this is kind of funny. I know a lot of people are, they write, they, they try, like I said, their own versions of the fasting mimicking diet. And I'm laughing because I actually wrote an entire blog post about it when you when I first when I first heard about it and I did discuss in that blog post about making my quote own version. Is that something that <laughs> that worries you or do you think people are mostly going to benefit from that? Or how do you feel about that? I mean, I know in your book you do out- outline how to do it with like I said with real whole foods. So how do you feel about yeah, where it's going? I mean, I I didn't want to you know, I didn't want to, in the book, hide uh, what it is, you know. I, I just wanted people to know that it's there. Um, but, in fact, what we tested clinically is more complicated that, than that. I mean, it'd be hard for most people uh, to make it. And um, and I think what, what I saw in Europe when I, fir- I had the first version of the book, they basically uh, gave an option. Say, you, or you can do it with the kit that you buy, or you can do it with, uh, with you, you know, find a, a registered dietitian and they can help you do it. And then we started getting the complaints back uh, uh, from the doctors, from the clinics, and, and basically lots of people ended up improvising in lots of different ways. And, uh, you know, a percentage of them got hurt. You know, they got hurt because uh, they didn't know that they couldn't exercise uh, uh, with it, or they got hurt because they just responded uh, uh, with hypoglycemia to the to the fasting-making diet that, that was improvised, and uh, or hypotension, or et cetera, et cetera. So I know that people uh, just have this need to say, "I wanted to be free. I wanted to just be able to control it," and. I, and, and unfortunately, um, although I fight uh, with my own company to make the price as low as possible, um, I, I, I also understand there is a, a safety and efficacy come first. And so I, I really have to move away. And I know some people are going to be disappointed. They're going to say, oh, you know, now I, I have to go buy a product. Uh, but uh, I, I really think that is the right thing to do for safety, for efficacy. Keep it, I'll just give you an example. When we start talking to the FDA or start looking at the FDA regulations for uh, talking to the FDA um, consultants, uh, and we have olives in the in the in the prolonged kit, and they say probably you're gonna have to get rid of the olives, and I say why? Because the FDA will not allow an olive to be included because it not cannot be quantified. 
Right, so, I mean, uh, yeah, but, but, but see, you know, it, to us, it, it might sound funny, but this is the, the agency that regulates drugs, and they've been doing it for a long time, and their purpose is to protect people. Now, you could say, what difference could it possibly make? Well, it could make a big difference. You know, I remember when we were first doing cancer tri- clinical trials, we were arguing, and there was a lot of doctors involved, we were arguing whether a few grams of sugar that it was coding uh, supplements could, com- could completely wipe out the effect of the, of the fasting, right? We didn't know. I mean, then we learned that probably not. But uh, so, yeah, so I think that that's the point of the FDA, that if you have to uh, re- be able to replicate it exactly the way it was. And um, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, if you did, a, well, let's say, water-only fasting, you can have lots of uh, good effects by doing a water-only fasting. But you could also get hurt, you know. For example, a gallstone formation could be uh, impl- could be um, promoted by by a water only uh, fasting, as well as hypotension, etc. So uh, I, I know it's hard to see it, but uh, but there's lots of problems that can come from improvisation, and this is why we have pharmacists, we have doctors, we have the FDA. Otherwise, we'll have gotten rid of it a long time ago. <laughs> well, I think that's that that is a great way of explaining that because. You're right. We're like an olive, <laughs> but you want it, You want to make sure that it's it's safe and that um, that it's been tested the way that everybody's using it. That makes sense. Can I switch gears and ask a question? Um, would you explain the word juventology? I, I read that in your book and I just loved it. Yeah. So um, uh, I guess the point. I, I'm in a school of gerontology here at uh, USC. And uh, in fact, uh, just the other day, I presented and the president of the university was president. I said, I really don't like this name that we have, you know, and uh, I really like much more juventology, which is the science of staying young. Right. So so I'm not that I was never that interested in what is the the process of why people get old. Uh, I was more, much more interested in what is the process that keeps somebody young for 40, 50 years, right? And then, then what happens to that, to that program that was so perfect up to that date? Um, yeah, so that's, that's juventology. That's the study of uh, the program that maintains organisms young. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way just to shift it because you're right. That's what we want. We want to stay young and youthful as long as we can, and that's the whole, whole point of this. Um, could you also talk about some of the things you mentioned in your book about um, eating foods from your ancestry and, and how that makes a difference for us? Yes. Uh, so if you look around now, almost every month there is a new food, right? That comes from some, somewhere in, around the world and it's got all these beneficial effects and, and everybody gets excited about, you know, whether it's uh, curcumin or it's quinoa, et cetera, et cetera. Now, uh, the, the problem with that is that we're focusing on, let's say, protein content. Like quinoa has lots of proteins, and so people may get it for that reason. Uh, the problem is that you're now bringing in something that your, your immune system has never seen before. And, um, and, um, and, and also, not just the immune system, it's also a matter of like your gut, your bacteria in your gut, the microbiota, has never seen that food before. Uh, and neither did your parents, right? So, so of course, that could have a neutral effect or no effect. It could be beneficial. But now you're putting yourself at risk for, for an autoimmunity, uh, an allergy. For example, Southern Italians are lactose intolerant. Norwegians are almost 100% lactose tolerant, right? So now imagine that an Italian starts eating milk which was uh, in the past only uh, used by adults in the Northern European countries, of course, you get uh, all kinds of problems, right? You wouldn't know, I mean, let's say 100 years ago, people wouldn't know why they were sick. Uh, now we know it's lactose intolerant, right? So my, my point is that this happens with all kinds of foods that come from somewhere else. The best way to go is, uh, you know, identify the, the range of foods that are actually nourishing you from your own land, essentially, right? And, and from your own ancestors' lands and, uh, and just keep, stay with those. You know, that, that is by far what, whether it's Okinawa or Loma Linda, California or Sardinia, Italy or Calabria, Italy or Greece 
all these areas they, they have record longevity that's uh, what they do they never go they if you ask the centenarians they rarely tell you oh yeah i used to eat all these exotic foods from all over the world that's right and you just mentioned some of the blue zones that are around the world that's also something that that's i've been fascinated by can you talk about the blue zones a little bit and, and what commonalities you found between them yeah, so the, the book uh, tries to um, learn from, from these longevity, record longevity zones, the blue zones, and, and not just the blue zones, all of their areas have record longevity. And, but that uh, forms one pillar of the five pillars that I use in, in the book, meaning that um, we, we look at the science, and science includes uh, animal studies, includes epidemiological studies, includes clinical work, and, and then it combines it with the blue zones to come up with, uh, with the solutions. And, uh, and not surprisingly, all the blue zones have in common this diet that is uh, uh, vegan, plus a little bit of either fish or meat, um, maybe once a week. That's what most people uh, used to do uh, in, 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 in most of these uh, areas. Mm-hmm. And um, it's uh, by, um, because it is a, a low meat diet, uh, the proteins are also low. And it turns out in a study that we did a few years ago that the low protein intake was associated with, uh, um, with uh, um, uh, protection from cancer and protection from overall mortality. Um, so, um, yeah, so these, these areas have, have in common um, also the eating from the ancestors um, and, uh, and being well-nourished. They, they, they tend to get everything they need from their diet um, and, and they're pretty careful at picking all the right things. Uh, also because I think this, uh, some of these, uh, has been passed down from, from, uh, person to person in the family, uh, making sure that your children eat all the right food. And, and I think, you know, now we're starting to lose a little bit that, that le- what we learn from ancestors, uh, because we, we move around so much and, uh, and we sort of need a manual. Uh, when, when in the old days, uh, it sort of came with uh, when you grew up, they, they, uh, you, you got uh, careful uh, recommendations. Yeah, I think that's a good point. We've lost track of, of what our ancestors did eat. I bet a lot of people wouldn't know. They would have to do some research to figure it out. Yeah, probably most people wouldn't know and exactly that. Yeah, you're right. They, they would need to do research. Maybe ask the parents. You know, what did you grow up? Because, of course, you wouldn't have to get to your, your grandparents. You just asked your parents, what, what did you eat when you were growing up? Uh, and uh, most people will tell you. They remember what, uh, I mean, those are probably some of their favorite foods. Yeah. And also, I wonder how far back you should go because, for example, my family is um, mostly from the British Isles. But on both both my mother's side and my father's side, they came came to America in like the 16, 1700s. So how far back should we go? Should we go all the way back to the British Isles when we're looking for our ancestral diet? No, no, you don't need to go back. You just need to go to your parents and grandparents and, of course, you know, ask questions. And if they were fine with lots of the foods that they ate, um, uh, then, uh, you know, you could just uh, uh, maybe look for the common denominator with some of the foods that come from from uh the, the the uk region and um and, and you know this and you'll be fine i mean i i don't think that if your parents and grandparents for 100 years ate the same food and never nothing ever happened to them uh then you're probably okay but uh uh the, the you know so for example if your parents and grandparents uh, drank milk as adults um and that you probably the chances that you're now genetically lactose intolerant is, is relatively small. Now, you could be, and you have to pay attention, but, but that's unlikely. That's good to know. And so going back to the, the autoimmunity and the, the food reactions and such, so I know a lot of listeners write into us because they have digestive problems or they just really struggle with um, certain foods. And I, I'm bringing this up because I as well struggle a lot with IBS and food reactions and find that I actually do better on, on a a lower FODMAP type approach to diet. Um, so can that approach still be done with your like longevity diet? So for basically for people who seem to not react so well to lots of plant matter in their, in their diet. 
Yes, I think that um, what happens is that we're mixing um, conditions which are, you know, somewhat pathological uh, with the diet that you do after you solve the, the pathology, right? So, you know, somebody has inflammatory uh, bowel disease uh, or, or similar intestinal issues, I think the key is to fix the problem. Uh, then I think for the great majority of the people, once you fix the problem, you can go back to the lots of these uh, uh, foods that don't necessarily uh, that, that bother you right now. You know, I'm one of them, for example. And uh, I've gone through. Uh, I get. I had an appendectomy uh, last year, and you know, antibiotics with it. And after I started having the problems with all kinds of foods that normally I could eat, right? So then I very carefully took my time to uh, to get back to where I was. And now it took me about a year, and now I'm back, right? So, and 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 why is this important? Well, um, the the microbiota in your in your gut, right? The, they may have taken, they may go back a couple of generations, right? So this is uh, really remarkable. And with all the antibiotics now we take, you know, and especially if you have surgery like I did or something like that, you can really uh, have to start from scratch. And, uh, and then it's going to take potentially a couple of years to rebuild that, right? So like in your case, most likely, uh, like in the case of almost, almost everybody out there having this problem, it's a matter of rebuilding and rebuilding sometimes also takes the some of the, the things that bother you, just a little bit of it, and takes a lot of patience, a lot of testing. So um, I think that, you know, these diets are, are we're really so common among the world population that it is extremely unlikely that they have some intrinsic uh, uh, problems, right? But it's very likely that, like tomatoes, for example, it's pro-inflammatory, uh, fine, but you know, it's one of the most eaten foods in the world, and and the great majority of people don't have a problem with tomatoes, right? So, so the question is, if somebody is bothered by tomatoes, uh, is this a permanent problem, or is this something that the gut microbiota can get reused to? Now you have bacteria that can process the the lactins, et cetera, et cetera, in the tomatoes, and then at that point you go back to normal. So that, you know, it's more than can be done in an interview like this. So. It takes like a very good doctor to recognize that that's gotta be fixed, and 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 it can be very tricky, you know. And the FODMAP, I think it's okay, but it's probably not not the the best way to go. It's much better to, uh, you know, identify the pro-inflammatory foods um, and uh, fix the microbiota, and then eventually go back to the foods, excluding the ones that, let's say, if you are if you have celiac disease and you're gluten gluten uh, uh, intolerant, then of course, um, if that's an autoimmunity, then of course you have to get rid of gluten. There is you can't just go back to it. But even gluten, it is possible that somebody could be retrained to uh, the immune system could be retrained to tolerate low doses of it. Yeah, that approach is pretty similar to what I've seen in my my journey. Mine start my problem started. I got about a food poisoning. And then antibiotics from that and everything just <laughs> kind of crumbled. And But I've learned so much from it. And the approach that I've seen is very similar to what you're talking about as far as fixing the problem. And that might require restricting certain foods at the beginning, but then ultimately nourishing the gut microbiome and hopefully getting back to a place where you can tolerate more foods. Um, but, then I, but then I do wonder, so, so for people who do find themselves thriving on a like a higher protein lower carb diet would you still recommend that they switch over or try to um you know embrace the principles that are more in line with your longevity diet which is lower in protein well i mean uh yes because you know the low carb high protein diet has been associated over and over with uh, increased mortality increased diseases uh None of the, the uh, record longevity population have a high protein diet. 
Uh, now, I think that people are confusing, um, are confusing a high-starch, high-sugar diet with a high-carbohydrate diet. And that's a very, very important distinction. So absolutely, it, it, for people, and I see it in, in Italy, I see it all over the world, uh, lots of people move to a high pasta, bread, rice diet, you know, where you have these big dishes. And, and of course, the United States uh, is very much doing the same. And so if you have lots of sugars and lots of, uh, lots of starches, you're going to have a problem, no doubt about it. But the, the idea of removing carbs as the major source of energy is also as bad, right? Meaning that, uh, again, uh, the, the most successful population have a high-carbohydrate diet, but they have a high-carbohydrate diet that is in the form of legumes, it's in the form of vegetables, uh, and in the form of cereals, right? So... Um, I think that that is the ideal uh, diet to have. Now, if you care for, if you go through that process like I did for the past year and you can't get out of it, yeah, then I can see in some cases, somebody might say, I'd rather, you know, adopt a diet that may make me live a little bit shorter, but it, it, it allow me to have a normal life. You know, then, uh, then I think that that's, that's a compromise that somebody might have to make. So, so if somebody ate steaks uh, four times a week, and that's the only possible way is that they can avoid uh, inflammation. Uh, I mean, I doubt that, 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 that that's true, but I mean, I, I, I think it's possible that some people, for some people with certain genetic background, uh, let's say a high meat diet may, uh, may uh, um, be some, somehow may allow them to have a, a normal life, whereas the other ones may not. I think that's a great point because everybody's coming from a different place. Um, I did want to ask, you mentioned that you could rebuild in, um, like you did after your surgery. Can you give some tips for, for how to do that, to do the rebuilding so that you can add some of these foods back in if you're having problems with them? Yeah, I mean, I think that rebuilding, a good way to, uh, to, to do it is to start simple, right? So start with the things that you know don't bother you. And make them, you know, uh, make them very frequent in your diet. So it could be ten foods. You know, say these ten foods, I eat them, I'm fine. And then slowly start adding one at a time, right? So for example, uh, if tomatoes uh, used to bother you, uh, this could be a good thing to start introducing once in a while, and just keep it the ten foods that you know don't bother you plus tomato, and go one week like that. If at the end of the week you problem start start again. Then, then tomato is going to have to be excluded, right? And uh, and then you go to the next one. I mean, it it takes a long time, but it's definitely worth it because um, I think you know slowly. Uh, if you you're you're if you're bothered a little bit, that's okay. Keep going with a little bit of tomato because that might be stimulating a particular population of of the bacteria uh, to start growing using the fiber from the tomato. And then the tomato, all of a sudden, a couple of weeks later, let's say legumes, right? This is very typical. People may say, hey, if I eat uh, chickpeas or if I eat beans, I have all these kinds of problems. Well, lots of times that's just the first 15 days, 30 days, right? Then the system gets used to it. You develop the new bacteria and that's not a problem anymore. So it's tricky. Uh, but yeah, that's what I suggest. Keep it uh, basic, then add to it and be very patient, and then you see that after, it might take the whole process, it might be two years long, but uh, that's definitely worth it um, because then you go back to a, a strong uh, microbiota. Thank you. Do you recommend supplementing or experimenting with different probiotic strains, or do you think that it's better to cultivate that through dietary choices? Both, meaning that I think that once you have the problem, uh, the probiotic and the prebiotic may be very good, right? So once you have an inflammation and that's all, a little bit, it, it's, it's a pathology or close to it, then I think the probiotic are, are really important because you have probably a very disrupted uh, microbiota and just giving the food may be it may be very difficult for that process to occur. Uh, eventually, as you move to a less inflamed state, then I think you, we need to get rid of the probiotic and move back to the food. You know, let, the, let it rebuild like our grandparents had it. They never had problems. So, um, so by, 
you know, probiotic is basically taking over something that the gut has always done on its own uh, and imposing, right? So it could go well, it could go now well eventually. So that's why I don't like uh, the probiotic all the time. But I, 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 don't, I think it's a good idea once you have a massive acute problem because that's when you have to intervene fast, you know. And of course, you can have medicine, but that's probably even a worse idea. But the probiotic in that moment represents a, a sort of a, the, the cavalry uh, bringing in the, the good guys uh, and at least helping reduce the inflammation uh, so that you can move to a better state. You know? Gotcha. And then you mentioned like the grandparents not having problems. So what do you think is the the key reason that we are seeing so many degenerative diseases today? Do you think it goes back to the antibiotics like you were talking about or the processed foods or everything? Do, do you think there's a, a, co- a common cause or is it just a conglomerate of the perfect storm? I think it could be any of the above and all of the above, meaning there could be definitely the, the antibiotics. Massive antibiotics, multiple antibiotics are now are given and just completely destroying almost everything in, in, in their track. And then uh, the toxins, it could be the pesticides from, uh, from the fruits and vegetables. Um, it could be, um, you know, of course, the, uh, the sweeteners and, and lots of the things that, that somebody might have introduced and our grandparents didn't have, right? So they, they didn't have Diet Coke. Uh, every day, and uh, they didn't have uh, candy every day. And now that doesn't mean that, you know, uh, I think some of it could be fine to some people, but uh, uh, when you start introducing antibiotic, pesticides, candy, Diet Coke, you know, aspartame, yes, one of it is bound to start pushing uh, the, the, the microbiota in the wrong direction, and then you build from there, you know, and then, then things get, you know, inflammation in the gut can, can lead to more, uh, to more changes in the in the composition of the microbiota, and then uh, it's a, it's a lost battle after that because uh, unless you do what I was saying, you have to go to a very fundamental diet and start rebuilding. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. It really is just the snowball effect of everything that's going on, and it's hard to pinpoint it. And it's not just one thing; it's all of them working together. I think. Can I ask a? This is a very selfish question. I just am really curious about your thoughts on it. How do you think that mindset and everything plays into all of this? Like, do you think it's all just about the foods that we eat and how our immune system reacts and everything? Or is there a, a mental component to it as well? Does that affect, does that even affect the immune system? Because we talk about that a lot in the podcast and I'm sort of obsessed with it. <laughs> so I just want to get any thoughts on that. On that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've known for a long time about the placebo effects, and 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 so uh, we know that uh, that somebody can be given a sugar pill and they could do much much better than somebody that didn't get that sugar pill. Um, so that means that the the you know mind can have uh, tremendous effects on on all kinds of um, processes and release of hormones and and factors and. And uh, yeah, of course, that the, they these uh, changes that are, are mind regulated can uh, can have uh, big impacts on on, uh, on everything. Um, so yeah, so absolutely that, that the 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 way you you uh, you respond to a problem um, can uh, can make a big difference in whether you're gonna have. Uh, a uh, success. I mean, at the, at the mind level, it can make a big difference on whether you're going to have success or, or failure. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that too. It's great to hear. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> All right. And I guess we should clarify because both Jen and I have read your book, by the um, by the way, and it was I loved it. It was fantastic. But I guess we should actually clarify. I don't think we've talked about what your longevity diet actually looks like specifically. So, uh, what would that what would that look like for listeners? Yeah, so the longevity diet, uh, I also, uh, I mean, having uh, run a lot of clinical trials, and uh, um, I also am aware of and work with lots of people, uh, and I'm aware of compliance issues, meaning that if you tell somebody um, to cha- revolutionize their diet, even if they do it, it's going to be for six months to a year, 
then they're going to drop it, then they're going to have more problems than before. Um, so, for example, the longevity diet includes uh, uh, pasta or, or rice or, or bread, right? But just enough to to uh, please people and to make sure that they're going to enjoy. So, for example, I'm from Italy. If you, um, I refuse the big dish of pasta, right? You know, I mean, whenever I go to Italy, it's everywhere, and I say this is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. At the same time, I refuse the re complete removal of the pasta from my dish. So I like to see about 50 grams, you know, let's say a couple of ounces of pasta, uh, and then, you know, 300 grams of, of, of uh, chickpeas and 200 grams of mixed vegetables. To me, that's the ideal dish, right? Because it mentally, uh, it's very rewarding and lots of olive oil on top of it, right? So in, in each, uh, I think, area of the world, it's got its own version of it. Uh, maybe Japan has a little bit less uh, uh, fats, uh, olive oil, et cetera, but uh, most of other areas tend to have a very similar version of it. So, uh, yeah, so I think that, that that's an ideal, that's a, a good example of what the ideal diet should be. And it should really be about eating a lot, right? The dish that I just described is, uh, is one over one pound in weight, right? So that's lots of food. And uh, uh, by the end of it, you you won't be able to eat much more than that. And yet, and and so high nourishment, you get all the the vitamins and minerals that you need. The, your stomach is full, so that the signals given to the brain are of, of fullness. And um, and uh, proteins are going to be low because it's almost impossible to have a high protein diet that is plant based. So you're going to almost eat as much as you want, and you only have to worry about protein intake. Because, um, it, it, again, it would be almost impossible to, to overeat proteins by doing this. Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's a good example uh, of, of the longevity diet. And then, of course, I have fish a couple of times a week. Why is that? Because I think it's easy to go in the other direction, which is become malnourished, become omega-3 malnourished, uh, become protein deficient. You know, so many people that I talk to, and they're, let's say, vegan, uh, I asked them, well, what did you eat in the last three days? And you know, I would say in a good 50% of the time, they haven't had enough protein or even near enough protein. You know? So they might say, I've had uh, a salad with some chickpeas on it. And maybe they had 30 grams of chickpeas. That's three grams of protein, right? So so if you eat like that, it's just a matter of, of a couple of years, you're going to be in trouble. Your immune system is going to start shutting down and most of your function is going to start uh, being uh, uh, not uh, as effective. And um, yeah, so I think it's fish a couple of times a week prevents uh, these problems by, you know, giving the omega-3, in most cases, um, much more protein. Uh, now you might have, you know, your typical uh, fish meal may have at least 70 or 80 grams of protein. And so that, that makes sure that uh, if, if, even if in, on the other uh, five days you ate poorly, uh, that's going to that's gonna, um, get rid of the problem. So the key is really to have lower protein but not too low. You have to make sure it's still sufficient. Yes. Yeah. So you, you have to have a low, uh, but exactly, not too low. Yeah, no, and I think so many people don't realize when they, when they make the decision they're going to go on a, on a vegan diet – low protein diet, they don't realize that the too low is as bad as too high. Yeah, that's that's a good distinction. Can you talk about the five pillars of longevity? I know we've, we've mentioned them a little bit and hinted about them, but what are the five pillars of longevity that you have come up with? Yeah, so the the, the first one we already discussed is the mm -hmm. um, is the centenarians and the, uh, the record longevity areas of the world. That's a very important pillar. And why is that? Well, let's say that you come up with, let's say, the ketogenic diet, right? Um, you could say uh, the ketogenic diet, I, I've looked at clinical trials, it looks good, and I've looked at uh, animal studies, and there's so studies that are showing that ketogenic diet is good for, for animals. Uh, but then you go look around the uh, record the longevity population around the world, and you'll see that none of them have a ketogenic diet. Uh, so that doesn't mean that the ketogenic diet could not turn out to be good, right? It's just that it's very risky, right? Because now you don't have that pillar telling you, look, people have been doing something like this for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they made it to, they had very long lives. 
so I really think it's one of the most important pillars. And then, of course, you know, epidemiology is very important. Another pillar, you know, if you, uh, for example, we work with uh, with the Harvard uh, School of Public Health, um, and they have 120,000 people that they follow. It's called the nurse and doctor study, uh, where you know they've been following what they eat and what diseases they develop, and for decades, right? So they can they can uh, uh, compare people with different diets and and. Uh, and see um, what different uh, diseases and also overall mortality. They live longer if they have uh, a certain diet versus another one. And then clinical trials, you know, clinical trials are very important. Well, what if you take, once you have an hypothesis, you take people that, let's say, on a high protein diet and people on a low protein diet and you compare how they do and and uh, those are harder to do because they're very expensive. Uh, but. Uh, uh, you know, for example, olive oil, right? That's a good example of something that has been tested by large, multi, uh, several thousand people, uh, randomized clinical trials where a group uh, was placed on, on lots of olive oil and nuts every day, and another group was placed on a low-fat diet, and they had to stop the study uh, within five years because the people on the low-fat diet were doing so much more poorly than the people on the lots of olive oil that it was unethical to continue, right? Is that the Predimed study? Is that how you say that one? This is the the Estruc study in Barcelona. Yeah. So, and that was continued then to also show effects on uh, on cognitive uh, uh, decline. You know, so the the, the people uh, using lots of olive oil and nuts, they they were doing better cognitively uh, in the long run. And uh, and then the fourth pillar is uh, animal studies, but animal studies uh, uh, focus on longevity. So if you give a per particular diet uh, to mice, uh, can, can they have, let's say, less cancer or whatever, but can they also live longer um, and healthier, right? That, that, that's very important because, again, you could have temporary effects for any diet. They look very good, you know. So, for example, if you give mice a low, uh, pro a high protein, uh, low carb diet, they eat less and they lose weight, right? So you, you, if you did that in mice, you conclude after a couple of months that that's a good diet. And then you keep going and you'll see that they die earlier and they start developing metabolic uh, disorders, right? So if you give mice a high carb, low protein diet, they eat more, they start gaining a little bit of weight, but then they have less metabolic uh, disorders and they live longer. That, that's uh, another, I think, good example of how um, basic research focused on longevity can uh, can help you not alone, but together with the other pillars, uh, come up with the recommendations that are not going to change anytime soon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I do know you discuss in your book about how um, we should have a lower protein intake up to a certain age. And then was it around 65, I think you said, that... Um, higher protein is better. So what, what, why is there that shift? Like why, why do we need um, more protein when we're older? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, uh, we don't know for sure, but certainly one thing that we saw in the trial is that IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor one, declines with age. And so people that had high protein diet before the age of 65 had very different levels of IGF-1 compared to people that had the low-protein diet. But after 65, that didn't make any difference, right? So people uh, that had a high-protein diet had lower levels of IGF-1 than younger people that had a, a low-protein diet, right? So meaning that uh, probably the, age, the uh, aging process is causing such severe deficiencies and problems that... Uh, by uh, introducing another deficiency, which is you know, low protein, they, you make the system struggle even more, right? And, and uh, for example, we showed that if you take mice that are young and you give it a very low protein diet, they're fine. If you give mice that are old and you give them very low protein diet, they start losing weight very rapidly. Uh, so for example, it could be the absorption in the gut it's affected, you know, an old individual may not be able to absorb as much. Uh, it could be uh, integration into the muscle mass. You know, you, the amino acids are there, but the, the system is not able to build as well anymore, right? 
So th these are just some of the examples of, of the things that uh, that could be problematic when you have a restriction in all people. You know, and and not surprisingly, lots of studies are now showing that having a little bit of, of extra weight, which hurts you when you're younger, and may help you when you're very old. And then you have the. Um... <laughs> The outliers, like you discussed in your book, and then that we just read about the cent the centenarians who eat, basically eat whatever they want, and here they are at one hundred, just chipping away. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that is, um, you know, usually that is explained by genetics, right? So, for example, Emma Morano that I followed until she died last year at one hundred and seventeen, she was the oldest person in the world, and. Uh, you know, so journalists talked a lot about the fact that she ate uh, three eggs a day and that she had meat every day. Uh, they didn't talk about the fact that she didn't have all that meat uh, when she was uh, up to age 85, 90, right? She actually had a much better diet. And they also didn't talk about the fact that every she had seven brothers and sisters and also the parents, almost everybody, or either everybody or everybody but one lived past the age of 90. So that means that uh, this is a very lucky and rare group of people that have such a genetic uh, uh, makeup that uh, doesn't matter what they eat. Everybody else, though, is not in that in that group, you know. And that that's interesting. I always think it's interesting because everybody else uh, wants to be in that group, and uh, and they uh, they say, well, if she if she made it to 117 eating meat, then maybe I can, but. Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. And then they all start eating three eggs a day and all the <laughs> trying to do exactly what she did, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think these, these, uh, these articles uh, uh, do tremendous damage and, uh, and because people are just waiting uh, to do this. You know? Yeah, I think people are so quick to just try to mimic. They see, some, they see something successful in a population or a study or some certain person even, and they're so quick to mimic it because they think, oh, well, that clearly works. But it's more about what works for you personally. That's what we talk about a lot on the podcast, finding what supports your health and your microbiome and your state of being. So it's very individual. Well, I mean, it's individual, but also don't forget that there are some rules that really apply uh, you know, in fact, we've been focusing on showing similarities between microorganisms, mice, and humans, right? So there are some fundamentals that apply to a, a unicellular organism as much as humans, you know? So, so I think it's important to look at the personalization, but also look at fundamentals and what's are something fundamentally making you live longer. For example, periodic fasting, right? I mean, you can do it in a yeast, you can do it in a mouse. And you can do it in people, and it, it makes all of them live longer. Uh, that's very important because uh, there are some things that are just as old as as the life on Earth. So, if you were to give us three fundamental principles that we could do to support our health and longevity, what would those be? Well, for sure, doing a fasting mimicking diet enough times, you know, based on your needs. Uh, that's uh, that's probably a number one, and uh, number two uh, would be have a pescatarian diet, a low mercury pescatarian diet. So eat fish a couple of times a week, and then uh, lots of legumes and vegetables. I mean, with the exception of people that are bothered by that particular diet, at least you know either temporarily or long term. And then I would say probably um, eat if you're overweight. Uh, eat two meals a day. Forget this five meals a day thing. You know, maybe I don't know. Maybe you're supporters of this uh, bad idea, but it's a bad idea. No, we're not. <laughs> yeah, we're not. We're not fans. You're not clear who came up with that one, but uh, it, it undoubtedly helped us in the United States get to 72 percent of the population being overweight and obese. Uh, it also Help, undoubtedly help uh, getting people to eat for 15, 16 hours a day. None of this happened before. And when you're told eat five or six times a day, I mean, this is what happens. You overeat and you eat for longer periods than, than you used to before. Yeah, it's funny. I've actually, I've recently been trying to gain a little weight and I've been wondering, 
I've been thinking maybe I should just do exactly everything they tell us to do, like eat, <laughs> eat constantly throughout the day, eat lots of snacks, eat low fat, and then maybe I'll, I'll probably gain weight. From yeah, it. that that's, that's <laughs> sure, that's for sure. And, and in fact, you know, that's what we recommend uh, for people that need to gain weight. We say, yeah, eat more times a day, and um, and and don't be as uh, as careful with the selection of foods because it, otherwise it, it's hard to uh, to gain weight. Yeah. Right. It's ironic. <laughs> so, out of curiosity, what is your typical diet? What have you What have you eaten today, and what do you typically eat? Well, today I skip lunch because uh, um, I uh, I've gained a few pounds, and so so you know this is I use my own technique, you know, of going from three meals a day to two meals a day whenever I had to get things back in check. I've been doing it for twenty years; works very well. And uh, um, I, for breakfast, I had tea. I usually have a, a black, uh, uh, black tea and green tea together with half a lemon. And the reason I have the, uh, the, green, the black tea is because it covers the taste of the green tea. <laughs> I was going to ask. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Because then it tastes just like black tea. And, um, you know, and then uh, tonight, I don't know, but probably uh, I often have what I described earlier, which is, uh, uh, which is the 50 grams of pasta and the 300 grams of legumes like beans and, and, uh, or, or garbanzo beans or, or black beans, etc. And then, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred grams of, uh, of vegetable, mixed vegetables. That's a, a very typical or let's say broccoli or uh, you know, one of the variations. Sometimes I have uh, salmon with salad, um, but uh, but in general, I always also look for things that I like. I truly like. You know, I I almost I don't eat almost anything that I don't truly like, and uh, that's also important to find the 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 twenty things that you look for. For example, once a week I have a pizza without cheese and with like eight different ingredients on it. Uh, the, the, the pizza place calls it the crazy pizza, but, uh, <laughs> it's actually taking something that, that, that could be unhealthy and making it fairly healthy. Uh, now the pizza, I, 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 I it's with, um, uh, shrimp. Um, and so it's a high nourishment meal versus what I will have if I, it was covered with, with cheese, which is uh, lots of animal fat, et cetera and uh, animal proteins, which I, I exclude from the diet. There's so many questions I want to ask you still. I wish we could have like a five-hour podcast. <laughs> I would ask so many questions. Um, but do you have any final questions, Jen, before I wrap things up? No, I think we, we hit all the, all the highlights, and I've really enjoyed talking to you, Dr. Longo. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, this has been such an honor, and it's it's actually it's very surreal for me. Um, I just remember when I was at USC, I would always bike by the the gerontology school, and it looked so mysterious. I was like, oh, I wonder what they what they study in there. <laughs> we we have people that are five hundred years old in the school. <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> that's the the little known secret. Now we've told the world. <laughs> That's awesome. And then even when I was writing my book, because I release, released a book in January, What, When, Wine, and I would study um, all of your studies and everything that you wrote. So just having you on the podcast today has just been really, really wonderful. And it's been great to pick your brain and we really appreciate your time. And I think listeners have definitely learned a lot <laughs> from our discussion. Yeah, that was great. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, very, very good question. Wonderful. So for listeners, a few things before we go. If you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 57, that's where I'm going to put links to everything that we discussed, all the show notes, everything will be there. And then uh, for we'll put links to your book as well. Uh, Dr. Longo, how can people best follow you? I mean, I know they can get your book, uh, but where is that available? How can people follow you as far as social media goes? Um, if they have questions, what, yeah. what are all the things? So the book, of course, is is on Amazon. It uh, should be still at Barnes and Nobles and and the other uh, bookstores. And then um, people usually follow uh, me at uh, Prof Walter Longo, P R O F Walter Longo, 
Facebook page and uh, we post uh, every few days, we post different uh, articles and that we feel uh, that are sort of filtered for quality and, uh, and they're publishing very good journals and they can help people mostly in the domain of uh, food and longevity. Wonderful. So I will put links to all of that at ifpodcast.com slash episode 57. And then a few of the last things for listeners before we go. Um, if you're in iTunes, you can subscribe to our podcast and then you will get episodes downloaded automatically each and every week. You won't even have to do anything. And while you're in iTunes, if you'd like to write a brief review, that would mean the absolute world. You can also follow us on Instagram. Our handle is uh, I have, I forgot for a second. Our handle is I have podcast and yeah, so I think that's all the things. Any final thoughts from anybody before we go? I really, really enjoyed this, this conversation. Now I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I think it was, it was something our audience will really like to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Great. All right. Perfect. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening. Okay. Okay. See ya. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.